This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to day three at Future Proof. Coming to the stage, we have Jeffrey Sherman, Samuel Lau, and their guest, our very own Barry Ritholtz. So take it away, gentlemen. Thank you, Nick. All right, everybody. Welcome to uh, a live recording. I guess they're always live. Uh, we just post them a little later. But it's a live recording of the Sherman Show podcast. I'm Jeff Sherman, and I have my co-host, Sam Lau, with me. Hey, hey. And today, as you guys are well aware in, in the crowd, we have Barry Ritholtz. Barry is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. No, that would be Josh Brown. Oh, I'm sorry, your CIO. Gosh, CIO that's you. Man, you know, Just you can't keep it straight. Don't tell Josh yeah. he was fired. He right. was very upset about that. You know, I think you gave me a promotion last time I was I on did. your podcast, so I'm just the returning time. the favor. How's that? I, I, yeah. In fact, during the podcast, people start out oh. at, like, uh, associate VP. By the time we're done, they're yeah. chairman and founder. Yeah. I work my way up the title. That's beautiful. But today, as you're well aware, is Tuesday... September 13th, I do that for compliance reasons, so they know all of the uh, things we're talking about are as of today. 2022, let's oh, yeah. that uh, into you for see, compliance. I'm just really bad at this. So, <laughs> um, so with that, let's start off. So Barry, we're at this Future Proof Wealth Conference, right? It's a festival. A right? festival, yeah. Right? It's a festival. We're in Huntington Beach. We are literally on the beach right now. Um, what, what made you want to put this type of event together? So we uh, had done a number of events with um, Matt Middleton and John Swalfs. They used to be with Informa, and we had done events, the uh, Inside ETF event. We put on our own event in Scottsdale, Arizona called Wealthstack in 2019, and we had all these great plans for 2020, and I don't know what happened. We kind of dropped the ball, and yeah. nothing happened. And so last year... So oh, you're like, responsible for shutting the entire economy yeah, down. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, okay. um, and then about 14 months ago, they came to us and said, hey, how do you guys feel about, you know, getting the band back together and going on the road? Yeah. Great. But, you know, when we did the events at Laguna Beach, it was like 20% outside. Can we do a little more, like 25, 30? And they're like, how about 100%? Yeah, we could, we could do that. How, how can you make that happen? We got a place. I know a guy. Yeah. Let's, uh, so, um, so there it was, the idea of, we're all locked down, stuck at home for two years. The thought of rolling into a hotel ballroom or, God forbid, the Javits Center, just, yeah. you know, <laughs> horrible. Yeah. So when, when we saw pictures of this place, wait, we could set everything up outside of the beach? No one's ever done that. Let's, let's make that happen, and here we are. All right, so what is unique about this besides you're, just, you're giving me all the benefits of being in California. <laughs> uh, t tell me what we're here to learn. So 2,200 people, nearly half are advisors. The idea was let's not just run out the usual, here's where I think the market's going to be, here's what the Fed's going to do a year from now. Instead, let's try and come up with some people with a deep, deep expertise in assisting the advisory community in best serving their clients. Some of that is investment management. 
Some of that is best practices. Literally, like if you can make a compliance panel interesting, you, you're doing something no, pretty okay. <laughs> um, how to communicate, how to create content, how to drive a conversation with clients and prospective clients instead of the usual, we're going to promise you we'll beat the S&P 500 and then nine months later you're having a conversation, why didn't you beat the S&P 500? Yeah. So, so all those tools are here, lots and lots of people with a deep expertise. We also went out of a way to make sure, you know, we've all gone to the conferences where it's just a dude fest and we really wanted to make sure we had more young people, more women, more people of color. We really went out of a way to say, hey, let's get everybody involved in this conversation because diversity of thought is how you get better decisions. Yeah, I used to always say, uh, my salespeople say, you've met this person. I'm like, oh, the white guy in the suit? Yeah, <laughs> right. is that what that was? Right. You know, I've so. met him a million yeah. times right. and I don't remember any of their names. Right, so at least Sam has a unique look about it, so there people usually remember him, you know. I guess that's in the name, too, the, that you guys came up with, Future Proof as well, right? Just that, that, that was the concept is how do you avoid having the world pass you by? And if we learned anything during the pandemic, it's not just that things change, but the pace of change is accelerating and merely keeping up is no longer good enough. If you're just treading water, you're falling behind. Everybody is racing ahead of you. So you have to do something that's a little innovative, a little different, a little more interesting. And it means taking a risk, taking a chance. This could have very easily crashed and burned. We've all been tracking the weather the past two weeks. I'm like, oh, great, 105. At least it's not a tropical storm. And then the next week, a tropical storm. <laughs> Through Mexico, nonetheless. Right. You know, so, right. so, you know, you have to. If you're not occasionally failing, you're not taking enough risk. Right. This was a little bit of risk. But it was like a, hey, what are the odds that the weather's going to be terrible in Southern California in the middle of September? I think we have a 90% probability of, of doing okay. I'll, I'll take that risk every year. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot better than market risk today. So, you know, let, let's talk about this a little bit because, you know, we're talking with advisors, you know, people with their end clients. What conversations are being had today? I mean, we just saw another unruly inflation print. Um, it's surprising to the upside. It, it looks like there's more sustained inflation pressures. How are you having dialogue with the, with the clients these days? And w how are you dealing with this idea that markets are down, my purchasing power is going down? How, how are you dealing with those issues? So first, it's always about the broader context. So market's down 20%. Yep. Let me remind everybody we're up 28% last year. We were up 21% the year before. 2010 to 2020 was wildly outperforming historical averages by five or 600 basis points. This is a feature, not a bug. And if your clients are first thinking about a downturn in the market in June 2022, you have failed to explain to them what they need to expect, yep. right? Markets go up and down. I know after you know the past decade, <laughs> it sort of feels like it's a one-way trip, but we spent a lot of time educating not just clients, but prospective clients. Here's what you should expect from us. Here's what you should expect from markets. Understand that the past couple of years may be atypical, and you're not investing for next month or next quarter or next year. Eye on the prize, and that's you know five, ten years out. Um, I don't believe we've ever seen a negative market print over any rolling 20-year period. So if if you need your money in one, two, three years, 
maybe stocks are not where you want to be. Maybe you need to be something more conservative, less volatile, less potential reduced uh, performance. So I think if people come into a market like this with the right expectations, if you were high-fiving your clients in December, <laughs> you're sending the wrong message. Yeah. The message last year should have been, hey, 2021 was awesome. Don't expect, you know, this too shall pass. That was the great Solomonic wisdom. <laughs> when it's bad, that's the time you want to buy. And when it's really great, you have to say, hey, eventually the wheel turns. Barry, I got, my mom has a question for you. I'm going to ask on behalf of Mama Lau and probably Mama Sherm as well. They're okay. both uh, retired, yep. and you know, it's been a challenging year. You know, traditional assets are, are down double digits, and uh, you know, they're both in retirement. So what type of advice have you been giving you know, to some of your clients? I know you manage a, a broad array, but for those that are on the cusp of retirement or thinking about retiring you know, this year or next year, or they are in retirement, do they need to walk, work longer? Do they need to get back in the workforce? Um, do they just spend differently? Do they invest differently? I mean, where's Mama Sherm wants to be chilling. Just Mama so Sherm be yeah. chilling, right? Yeah, the time. I, and yeah. you know, you, you can't say to somebody who's worked for fifty years. By the way, you got to get back out in the labor force. Yeah, that yeah. that is advice that will not be well received. So, part of it is understanding that we're going to see an up and down in the market. That's a given. In the beginning, earlier this year, we reduced our duration on our fixed income. Uh, the longer your duration, the more volatility you're going to see in a rising rate environment. At a certain point, alternatives to traditional treasuries start to look attractive. And I don't mean anything crazy or structured or derivative. I mean, look at munis, what you're starting to get now, especially in a high-tax state like California or New York. You're, you're not quite 5% tax equivalent. That's a reasonable number that five years ago. And those are short, by the way. Right? Yeah, to, you can get five on the short end of the right. Yeah, so, right. So that is um, – and, of course, I say go, go listen to the Jeffs and, and get some insight <laughs> into, into the fixed income world. But that's one of the things you have to do. You also have to think about, you know, the typical lifespan for somebody who makes it to 75 – is they're looking mid-80s, mid-early 90s. Yeah. So you can't, the old days of saying, I have to completely roll back my equities because I'm 60 and retiring, the lifespan is too long to do that. 60-40, I suspect, is appropriate for people in the 70s now that wasn't appropriate 20 years ago. 20 years ago, unless it was, you know, generational and um giving this to my grandkids and great-grandkids. At that point, it could be 70-30 or 75-25. But today, you can't just say, all right, I'm retiring. I have to roll out of equities. Um, doesn't mean you have to go, you know, full arc. You could be a little more conservatively invested. <laughs> but, you know, that, that the idea that I'm retired and I can't have equities anymore, um, I think the longevity has completely changed that calculation. Right. So we, we've seen a lot of negativity out there, right? The narrative is pretty bad. Um, I don't know if it's just media or the stuff we read, but you know, you see the housing market slowing and people think it's catastrophic, right? We always fight the last war. We think it's going to be the right. same thing again. Right. Um, it's we, all those subprime mortgages. Now right. Yeah. Blowing uh, yeah. Up. Although I did see one coming in that said, uh, bosses don't rent call us for a mortgage. So if you're a boss out there, make sure you're not renting according to that billboard. But, you know, you, you've actually seen, you know, some of the, we've seen the GDP data. You put a great article about, uh, out about how just the two consecutive negative quarters isn't a recession. You got to look under the hood. So There's silly. a lot of stuff, right? 
but there's mass negativity. Is this the buying opportunity, or how are you thinking that? What are you finding opportunities in today? So we like to look out long term and think, what what are we going to be seeing in five years? The underlying economy is pretty healthy, even with rising rates. Yeah, the Fed was late to get off of an emergency footing. Yep. And they were late to recognize a spike in inflation. And they're probably going to be late to recognize that they've already done enough. Done too much, yeah. Right? right. I mean, that's their history. Right. Right? They're always behind the curve. I I had an interesting conversation. Because they look at data. And by the way, the data is lagged. Right? That's what they use to make so, decisions. So right? the, yeah. not only is the data lagged, but the conversation I had with Steve Leisman last night over drinks in the treehouse over there, which like all of a sudden a circle forms, and I'm like, are we talking too loudly and too <laughs> drunkenly? Yeah. Um, but it was about the key to the Fed model of raising rates is future inflation expectations. And you look at the history of expectations, they're not just a little off occasionally. They're terrible. As a group, inflation expectations has been consistently wrong forever. So Steve And normally way too high. Right, right way too high. They've been way too – so finally, after 20 years of being wrong, suddenly, oh, look, inflation, they got lucky one out of 20 times and suddenly (laughs) – but but Steve's point was – the two points made were, hey, you need something in your model about future inflation expectations. And my counterpoint is – if your model requires uh, an input that you know is wrong, the problem is your underlying model. And if you're making rate increases based on a flawed model, you know, it's the old joke about the general. Hey, I need my uh, weather prediction in order to arrange our, our troop movement. And so, the, you know, the colonel whispers in the general's ear, hey, you know, your weather forecast, your guy, he's been terrible. He's gotten it wrong. I know, but I need it for my uh, for my tactical development. That's the Fed. They need something that we know is wrong. So what do you do about that? Well, the other thing about the Fed is that they, they have this embedded thinking of something called the Phillips curve, right? So the, the relationship between the unemployment rate and inflation. Lower unemployment drives higher inflation, and it's all about wage pressure, price pressure. Because that worked out the past decade. That's what right? I was going to say. And it was developed, what, in like late 70s? It was, like, it was almost like that Laffer curve that it was in the, right. on the napkin, right? <laughs> right? It's like, well, here's a parabolic function. Let's look at it. Uh, or it's a hyperbolic function. But point being all of this is that you know, they're wedded to this model because they have a dual mandate. Right. right. The mandate is to price stability. And I've always joked, why is 2% inflation price stability? It doesn't sound very stable to me, <laughs> you know, but they have that and they have the, you know, this full employment objective. Well, guess what? Right now, employment is good. Labor market. And we know it, it, it can be lagged. Right. Um, you could you could nitpick it, but we're creating jobs. Right. Wage yeah, growth. There. Jobs. Wage growth there. So what what changes in that Fed rhetoric? Because uh, ultimately, they're what is this model? If labor stays strong. Does that keep their foot on the accelerator because of that fear of perpetual inflation? I mean, that's the $64 trillion question, isn't it? How, uh, how far is too far and right. how long is too long? You know, lower for longer, that, that's dead. So yeah. now is it And it was too, it was too long. We all right. agree with that. Right. Yeah. Listen, the mistake, the first mistake wasn't missing inflation. The first mistake was staying on an emergency footing way past the end of the emergency. If you... Rather than look at consensus estimates for inflation, if you looked at the market in 20, like the second half of 2020, the market was telling you the emergency is over. Right. 
you know, you can now remove your massive accommodation. How about stop buying bonds? Right. right. That, I mean, that was the easy thing well, to do. Well, right? now they're doing it, so that's how they're right. going to, you know, quantitative tightening is now going to add yet another thumb on the scale. Yep. Um, but, you know, I'm not a Fed hater, and I think we have to deal with the world as it is, not as how we want it to be. Um, I always cringe whenever anyone says, "Yeah, well, yeah, I've been underperforming for a while, but it's the Fed's fault. <laughs> well, if that's the case, you have to adjust to the reality. So the Fed's I, I blame the Fed for the 100-degree weather here in Southern California. Right? You know? I, I mean, mean, it was their fault. They're to blame for it, well, right. the root of all evil. It used to be the Trilateral Commission 30 yeah. years ago. <laughs> now it's the Federal Reserve. So, look, the Fed is a constant, right? We know, we know they're going to make a mistake. And, by the way, the research that comes out of the various Federal Reserves, they should listen to their own researchers because right. their research is great. There's a couple of papers out there on inflation expectations and why they're wrong, and we need something else from the Fed. And yet, they just keep doing their thing. So A lot of the inflation expectation problem, though, is anchoring bias, right? It's that we had high inflation, we expected, we had low inflation. It's, it's, it's resetting those expectations. That is the problem with every single survey, every poll, every expectation is – it tells you nothing about the future. It tells you, you know, when you do a client survey and try and say uh, with a prospective client, so what is your risk tolerance? The answer isn't their risk tolerance. The answer is, what has the market done for the past three months? If the market's up, yeah, I have a big tolerance. I want a lot of equities. I'm good. If the market's been down, I'm a conservative investor and I don't want any volatility. Ask the same question a year later and you get a totally different answer. So the problem with that anchoring is that humans make um, decisions that are irrational, and it has a very big impact on their performance and their portfolios. So shifting that to the client side, how do you have these conversations with your clients in terms of, you know, just had a, a great 2021 to into a bad 2022? How are you having these conversations with these clients in terms of managing these expectations and what their biases tend to so, so an ounce of, of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You, you have to have that conversation before their clients. Let, let us share with you our expectation for the future. Markets will go up and down. Rates will go up and down. Bonds will do good some years. Bonds will do poorly some years. You have to be prepared that there's no free lunch. And the reason you get to outperform some years, the reason you get to make money some years, is that there's risk and volatility and your uh, performance expectation going forward is often going to be disappointed because the market's going to do what the market's going to do and you can't control that. Once you accept the fact that there's a bit of a random walk to how markets go year after year and you want to have a robust portfolio that can withstand the ups and downs, um, we'll let you know when the shit's hitting the fan and we'll call you up and say, yeah, this really sucks. The quarter is looking ugly. And we have no idea when it ends, but we'll be okay on the other side. If that's the first time you're telling them that, down 20% in stocks and double digits in bonds, that is not going to be well received. But if the conversation is, hey, remember when we told you stocks go up and down, bonds go up and down, we will enter a period where none of us are going to be happy? Welcome, uh, welcome to the jungle. You're in that period right now. It's much better received when... You're predicting in advance, not the market will force, fall 17% and the bottom is June 17th, but 
hey, market's going to go down and we've been in the middle of a fantastic run. This cannot go on forever. It, it's well received. And, you know, people are smart if you explain to them in the context that they're not getting elsewhere. Right there, the you know, the general media drumbeat is rotate out of this sector. Here's what you need to get your portfolio together. And, dude, your portfolio is geared for 15 or 20 years from now. What do you care what happened on September 13th in 2022? I love to show people the chart of the um, past 40 years. Show me the 1987 crash, the worst one day drawdown. It's a little But that day, it feels terrible. Um, Ed Yardini puts together this flip book of all the headlines yep. day by day. And when you look at them six months back, you six months later, they all look like, why were we upset about any of this stuff? Yeah. Well, uh, I like to always say you don't short human innovation and, and that there's nothing better than the United States for that, right? I mean, this is, this is a country of innovation. And, you know, there's, there's been dire times and we've gotten through them every single time thus far. Maybe we're going to blow ourselves up with this, you know, triple digit heat, you know, but, you know, we're, we're, we'll, we usually get through it. But so, that's a global problem. That's, that's, not, yeah. that's an absolute problem, not yeah. a relative problem. Yeah. So you talked about, I, I picked up on the word robust mm. on your portfolio. How do you build a robust portfolio, especially in today's market? So the core, so basically we're indexers for the core of what we do. And if the heart of, you know, 50, 60, 70% of your portfolio looks like some sort of a broad index, um, then you'll more or less get market performance. The advantage of that is you're not going to shoot the lights out in any given year. Puts guardrails around you a little right, bit, right? But you're, you're, you're not going to shit the bed in any given year. You're not going to be in the bottom quartile in any given year. You'll be where the market is. And Howard Marks um, uh, is the one who first alerted me to this. If you're pretty much in the middle consistently over 10, 15 years, what happens over time are the guys who are up and down, those down years really crush them. But you very slowly move your way into the top half, top third, top quartile. The longer your average, the better your performance ends over time. And if you have a 10 to 20 year window, I mean, there are some portfolios that are average that are top decile. Yep. So, so that's the start. And then around it, that's the Christmas tree. The ornaments you hang on it is, hey, if you want a little value or a small cap or, or tech or momentum or whatever flavor you like around that, that makes sense. But, you know, Arc, I'm always surprised that, that Kathy likes to slag um, passive equity because she's like the perfect ornament for someone who's like, you know, I'd like a, a little passive, bit of that right. crazy alpha juice. Right. Let's take a shot with that. But that really should never be 70% anyone's portfolio. Well, that's how we run our business, right? We have a total return strategy. Right. That's the core. It's supposed to be let you sleep well at night. Right. It's not going to shoot the lights out, but it's well risk managed. Then we offer like direct credit products, right? That you want some Octane. Talk to our people about how to pair them together. That's the way we think about Did our I business. Well, this whole <laughs> oh, no, no. I got it from you. Oh, okay. I got it from you via Howard and all that. And Listen, this other guy. You a, know. a lot of people think that's a very solid approach because – there's that itch you got to scratch. There are people who are like, you know, I can't just be plain vanilla. Okay, so here's a little karma, a little salt, a little chocolate. Enjoy. And as long as they can live with the bulk of their money, doing what it's supposed to do, compounding over time, all the stuff around the edges, you know, it'll be a little better, a little worse, it, but it won't derail them completely, and that's what matters. So, 
Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so speaking of derailing completely, mm. what is the one area, and again, not to pick on the specific funny thing, but what, what is the one area that you don't want your clients to touch? So we get a lot of, hey, can you take a look at this? I'm mm -hmm. sure you guys see mm -hmm. this also. And Usually they want us to buy the business, but yes. <laughs> or there's a strategy. No, we'll, yeah, yeah, or co-invest yeah. with you. Yeah, hey, right. I'm putting money in this. Right. You guys want to co-invest. You guys want to put $100 million in this? <laughs> yeah. So, so the, one of the issues that you start to realize, and full credit to Ben Carlson, I don't know if he's around, for the term organizational alpha, you don't want to spend a lot of time, energy, resources looking at a one-off you know, uh, a sub one percent position, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you really don't want to do that because um, A, you lack the expertise. B, the due diligence on that is really hard. C, you don't know who's full of crap. You don't know who doesn't have a track record. The legal accounting compliance costs are substantial. So when we see these like one off investments, it's, hey, you know, that's a really, uh, it's a liquid. There's no track record. Even if past performance isn't indicative of future performance, at least you have a frame of reference to say, all right, I think these folks know what they're doing and this is an extension of that. So, so those are an issue. Um, if there's an illiquid investment and there has to be some form of illiquidity premium that makes sense, if someone wants, real estate had, was coming up a lot last year, yep. if someone wants real estate exposure, hey, there are ways to get professional exposure to real estate as opposed to this particular set of multifamily homes in this town right. with this. Re oh, now, is that military base staying or is that closing? How do I build that into a model? I can't, I can't do that. So, so those one-offs, heaven forbid it's a restaurant or a play. You know, we, we see those. Um, Hamilton... A play. I, I don't think I've been pitched a play. A movie, how about a movie? <laughs> not yet. The movie, movie rights, yes, but definitely not so, a play. So the thing that that's fascinating is, like, restaurants are a terrible business, but a good restaurant is a big moneymaker. Right. And it's a whole opportunity to talk about survivorship bias. Correct. Hey, so you're seeing the one that's there. How many restaurants were in that exact location and failed? Yep. And eventually, someone else did the renovation. Someone else built out the kitchen. These guys came in. It was cheap. They had a good menu. Right. And it worked. But the previous nine crashed and burned. You have to understand what, you know, I think the whole world is survivorship bias. And when we see stuff that works around us, it gives us a skewed perspe perspective. Success is rare. It's fragile. And it's temporary. <laughs> and people need to remember that. If you were to extend that to some of the more popular uh, FAD or FOMO trades, thinking about SPACs or NFTs or crypto, introducing those into the client portfolios, how does that work into the mix, especially with something that does have a shorter uh, track history for track record for, for its history? So I love that question. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy I interviewed who started doing SPACs in the early 2000s. Incredibly successful tremendous track record has done like 60 of them. If that person floats a SPAC and you want to participate in it, past performance, no guarantee of future returns, but hey, here's a person who seems to know how to find companies, how to acquire them at the right price, how to make it work. When every other Tom, Dick, and Harry launches a SPAC, when celebrities start to get involved, you know, that always makes me wary. But I, fortune favors the brave, Barry. Fortune yeah, favors the brave. Right. L look at Look at every celebrity crypto endorsement yeah. and then 
drew a chart on it, you know. And, and then and then go watch the South Park episode about it. Hilarious, which is yeah, just, by the way. Yeah. just unbelievably accurate. It, they crush it, yeah, yeah. But every one of these charts is a ski slope in, in you know, in Vail. That's right. what they look like. So we haven't even really talked about private equity. Sometimes the universe says, hey, this is get becoming a little crowded and you need to be very selective in where you go with, with uh, private equity. I, I'm thrilled that Kim Kardashian is now in the space because how does that not at least put people on alert? Hey, you really have to kick the tires because some of this stuff is just famous people putting their names on crap. It, it didn't work out all that well with crypto. I don't know how well it's going to work out with private equity. All right, but let's talk about private equity. So a lot of people uh, over the last couple of years, especially with public markets where valuation was, the excuse was bonds. And, and we agreed in some capacity. Like Bonds were ridiculously overvalued out right. in the marketplace. Now, 40-year bull market will yeah, do that. Yeah, right. and you know what? At this point, they're starting to look pretty dang attractive. But on the other side, people said valuation's rich in public. Let me just put some stuff into private. So um, how, do you, how, how do you guys think about that with your clientele about allocating to VC, private equity? And again, are, are you doing it for the protect them from themselves because of the illiquidity? H how do you think about those markets? So, so we don't sell private equity, but we allow people to buy it. If someone, we have a platform, we have a number of different offerings. If somebody says, I really would like something that's diversified and not public, we can show them some things. However, there are a lot of asterisks with private equity. Um, markets down 20, 25%. Private equity holding up pretty well. Yeah. Must be nice not to have to mark to an actual price every uh, tick, every day, every month. Well, every the, on that note, I got, I got a statement from a fund, and it was the second quarter update, and it was up. And I'm like, what? You guys yeah, I, are I, the best. I clicked Can it. I send you more yeah, money. Yeah, I, I opened it and they sold one company, right. made money, and everything else is at cost. Right. I mean, what a great is. market. You know? So, so the the only decent argument I've heard is, hey, when everything gets dicey and people start lowering their ask price for the sort of deals we can do, we have an opportunity in a low market to yep. buy into privates cheap. But the pushback that, to that is now do public markets. Oh, wait, when they come down, yep. you get to buy into public markets cheap also? The difference is public markets get their market all the time. Yep. So, so we looked at a couple of um, real estate funds. There's a farmland fund that looks pretty in interesting. And what made the farmland fund appear a little different than some of the private equity is we do a full audit and a full comparable on 25% of our holdings every quarter so each year our marks are about as updated as you're going to get in real estate and that sort of approach where there's no zillow for farmland that, yeah, that's yeah. right that you're not marking to fantasy you're marking to real comparables look if you're geographically in the same area and i grow corn and he grows corn and i have access to these water rights and he has access to these water rights you more or less can say these are comparable and that was sold so you have some rational per acre basis, like they have it institutionalized. Sure. And I think there hasn't been pressure on, on PE other than a handful of people like Dan Rasmussen, who's been saying their marks are all made up. The ROI is fabricated. <laughs> He's talking with painting right. with a very broad brush, but it raises the issue, hey, you guys need to be a little more current 
in your marks, but you know that's a whole nother uh, issue. So what's attractive today in the public markets? I mean, we're down about 12% on the, uh, in the Bloomberg U.S. bond aggregate. Probably after today, we're down probably mid to high teens in the S&P 500. There's, are things starting to look a little bit more attractive again, or you kind of just wait and see how things go as, as uh, some of these uncertainties become a little bit more clear? Right. Well, the future is always inherently unknowable and uncertain, yep. so I'm not a big fan of the uncertainty beam. Uncertainty means that we're really nervous, most of the time, we're busy lying to ourselves, and that gives us a, a degree of comfort. So no one knows what now. I don't remember a whole lot of people in December of 21 saying, all right, strap yourself in. The next six months are going to be a shit show. The future was just as uncertain back in December. We had just lulled ourselves into a very comfortable stupor. And, and that's how we operate. That's human nature. Um, we talked a little bit about munis. If you're in a, a high-tax state, if you're in a blue state, and you could get four, four and a half, almost 5% tax equivalent, people would have killed for that five years ago. That's really attractive. When we look at the equity market. By the way, a year ago, high yield, the broad index didn't even yield that. Right, that's right. right. For junk bonds. Right. right. And what are the, you know, hey, they're yielding 9, 10%. Yep. I don't think there's a whole lot of risk in junk now, do no. you? What do no. you? What are your thoughts? I mean, look, I, I think right now, I mean, right now, if you want to take risk, you should take risk in the bond market. And I'm not talking about buying T-bills. I'm talking about buying credit. I'm talking about down down capital structure. I'm talking about lower rated. You private can private credit. You're talking. I'm no. I'm talking public markets. What's the risk on a 13 yielder. The risk is you're probably down 10. Okay. You know, and you know what? The stock market is it going to give you 13 next year? I don't know. We all none of us know. know. But it could easily go down 12, 20. 7 is a real chance, but 13. Right Thir no, no way. 12, 7 is as far as it goes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, look. I think that there's there's interesting things where it has a different risk profile, right? The asymmetry of it, right? right. And look, are you going to have some defaults? Yes. Are you getting 13? Maybe not. But it looks like you can get 10 easy right. with a defaulted environment, so, right? So with a recession, right? So here, here's where we are. How much of the recession is priced in? We really don't know because we don't know how far the Fed is going to go. Right. So where, where was inflation this morning? It was 8.3. All right. So... We're at two He's all and questioning quarter, me. two yeah. and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He flipped yeah. the script on you. So, so even if the Fed manages oh. to take rates up to 4%, right, they're, they're still negative here. So yep. we have to deal with that. So but that, that's contemporaneous inflation, right, right. and everything. That's, that's not right. necessarily what it looks like in a year's time, right? So, so here's how I look at uh, opportunity in the equity market. Yep. You have a, a massive reset in 2020, a 34% um, down move that kind of you know starts the clock over again yep you end up with uh the biggest fiscal stimulus in history cares act one was two trillion dollars in a 20 trillion dollar economy we've never done 10 percent of gdp oh let's add cares act two to that mm -hmm. another trillion dollars oh really hold my beer here's cares act so the first two under trump the third one under biden yep. uh cares act three on top of CARES Act 3, here's an infrastructure bill. Oh, by the way, the inflation bill. Um, no, it's inflation bill. reduction. If we right? print money and spend it, it will reduce inflation, Barry. Now, to me, the base, best inflation hedge looks like in the out years is going to be equities. Seems companies have the ability to pass along cost increases. Sure have. Or yeah. just say, we don't have any cost increases, but who's going to notice? Raise prices. Have you, have you looked at the margin chart on the S&P 500? It's, it's pretty, the highest it's amazing. been in like 45 years. Pretty amazing, right. 45 years. In this economy right now, 
The margins on the S&P 500 are the highest they've been in 40 years. Plus, when we look at the labor market, so you have a ton of people who retired early, a lot of people um, who died during COVID. Immigration has been on a downtrend. Right. People want to blame Trump, but Biden has more or less continued many similar policies. Yep. But it goes back 15 years. The number of immigrants coming into the country, legal immigrants, right. has been falling um, that's before we talk about 30 million people with long COVID in the U.S. So the labor market is dramatically reduced from what it should be. We can fix it by, you know, doing all the green cards, doing all the HB1 visas, letting more skilled immigrants in and unskilled immigrants because lots of jobs. The reason it takes you 20 minutes to get a coffee at Starbucks out here yep. is that there aren't enough people willing to take the, those, those jobs. Bring folks in, let them take jobs. But that gives you a sense, back to the word robust, of how strong the underlying economy is. And keep in mind, you know, the Fed is dealing with inflation today, but we've had, you know, 20 years, 30 years of technology-driven deflation. Yep. You know, international trade, automation, technology. Outsourcing jobs to other right. countries, right? The, so some of that is now going to reverse. Right. And we're seeing we've had deflation in wages up until a year or two ago. So some of that's going to reverse. But the key thing is we got um, a little complacent. We allowed our supply chains to become brittle. Uh, we didn't bring enough laborers. We took it for vantage that took it for granted that we'll always have minimum wage people. We could pay eight dollars an hour to do the grunge work. That's done. We need a response that that comes up with that. But when I'm looking at this circumstance out a couple of years ago from now, it's hard not to be bullish on where the U.S. is. We haven't talked about the dollar. Wherever you look in the world, currencies are always relative. If the dollar is this strong, what is that telling us about Europe, about Asia, about Japan? It says it's the best co country to be to be in right now. Right. You know, uh, you bring up the the labor, and I have an anecdote for that, which is dangerous. You know, to extrapolate. But uh, my nephew uh, has started to live with us, and uh, he's going to community college, and he got him a job at the donut shop. Donut shop. What do you think he gets paid at the donut shop? $15 an hour. Sixteen fifty to start. He got a raise already. Two months in. Shout out to Gage. Good job. He's making 18 bucks now. And he just got a promotion. This is like being on one of your shows. He's got a, now he's the doughboy. <laughs> you know, so I was calling him Ice Cube. He didn't get the reference. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, when you look at that, and it is, a, it is a supply shortage of things, right? And so, you know, how do we entice people back into this labor force? Because I think preferences change, as you said, like the evolution, you know, we're talking about the future. H how do we change that dynamic to get us to where we are sustainable and we don't have to rely on a lot of foreign demand or, or foreign supply chains and the like? So we're starting to do some of that onshoring a bunch of... Um the semiconductor bill and building a bunch of uh, uh, chip companies here is going to be a start. I don't know if that, that's enough. Um, Just-in-time inventory is one of those things that... It's gone. It's gone, itself. right? Yeah, right. Well, you know, it's gone for now. We'll see how long people start saying, hey, if we reduce our inventory supply. That I think the takeaway for me from the pandemic is you lock people in their houses for two years and you give them $1.4 trillion in unemployment, they're going to find a way to upskill, to improve their, their abilities, their certification. We have had record new job formation in 2020, 2021. It's starting to plateau in 2022. But 
millions of people basically have quit and said, you know, I could do my own thing. I could create a ha an app. I could develop a service. I could share my labor with someone and get paid for it rather than working in a traditional office. And that dynamic has not finished running out. That's what we're going to be wrestling with over the next couple of years. Okay. The whole work from home phenomena, the whole, you know, do I really need to be in the office nine to five, four or five days a week? Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, I was skeptical that was going to change for everybody else. We had always been remote. When we launched our firm in yeah. 2013, we had clients all over the country. We had people working remote. Everybody didn't have to come into the New York office. The New York office now is something like 15% of our staff. Uh, lots of people are working virtually, working remote. And in New York, we're in you know two days, three days a week. We don't feel the need to go in every day. That How that plays out over the next couple of years is going to be a big driver of um, the labor force, wages. I think eventually inflation subsides because the drivers of inflation have been the pandemic, the lockdown, the supply chain snafus, and, and the shift from services to, demand, to, to goods. Good, yeah. When everybody's stuck at home, you're not going to the movies, you're buying big screens. Yeah. Um, I thought that would have subsided earlier. I got that wrong. I thought by the, by the end of 20, we would, we would be shifting oh, no, back to that services. Was, that, that was, was a, too early. That was ongoing. Right, that was, and keep in mind, post 0809, Lots of contractors, electricians, masons, carpenters left that field. Right. So that was a smaller group, and there was a, you know, go try and get a decent uh, contractor now. It, it takes a while. So I think those changes are going to have a, a longer-lasting effect. Um, and the question is, what does that do to local real estate prices? You know, if I don't have to have an office in midtown Manhattan, if I can open up a branch out here, Although this isn't exactly a low-rent part of town. <laughs> yeah. But if I can open up a branch wherever I want that's inexpensive, think about what that does to the urban core and the ability to charge top price for sure. those sorts of things. Uh, it, it has to have a deflationary impact eventually. Eventually. Yep. So, Barry, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and bring it back to the uh, wealth advisory business. You've been in this business a long time. You've seen trends and changes what are some of the current trends that you're seeing? Because, I mean, the idea of a model-based business that is given to you by a robot, robo-based advising, target date funds seem to be something that's a little bit uh, on the rise. How do you see that changing your business? I mean, it, it, part of it's on something that you were talking about before, indexing, right? right? So that's changed our business on the investment management side where people are gravitating towards and using the index funds more. How are people, what do, you, what do you think about the robo-advisory and the rise of these models that basically I'm guessing a lot of these models that are offered by some of these brokerage houses all kind of fit the same thing. How old are you? When do you want to retire? Let's put you into some. What's your savings rate? What's correct. your income? Where do you want to go? Yeah. So, so look, the beauty of, of the robo-advisors is that for a long time, if you're starting out with five or 50 or 250, big firms didn't want anything to do with you. Right? The, I remember a couple of years ago, memo went out. I don't remember if this... And, uh, and those were thousands you're talking, not right. millions. Yeah, right, right. right, right. $250,000, the memo goes out at, I don't remember if it was Merrill or Morgan, but hey, if you have a sub-250 um, uh, client, you can't charge commission on it. You can't charge any fees on it. Because they just didn't... They wasn't didn't worth it. their time, effort, compliance to deal with it. So, Bannerman, Wealthfront, these other robos step in. Um, eventually, Robinhood steps in. 
the ability to give somebody a decent portfolio um, that that makes a little sense for 25 or 50 base points seems like an improvement of just leaving them to themselves. Um, so we have a basic robo and we have a, a step up that gives you a dedicated advisor if you're a, a young uh, investor but you don't want to do it by yourself but you don't want to pay full boat this sort of it splits the difference and you you have an advisor you're probably not looking for tax harvesting or dealing with capital gains or estate planning or all the things that a full fee RIA is going to going to provide for you so if you're not using those services why why pay the the ride for that so that's one aspect of it um, people always have the ability to go out and do it themselves. So if you're an advisor, you have to bring something to the table. You have to be value-add. Some of it is behavioral counseling. Some of it is just being a sounding board. And some of it is just talking people off the ledge when the first half of the year goes by and it's like, this whole thing is a rig and I want out. <laughs> it's like, well, look at it over time. This is not unusual. This happens. So if you can bring that to to a client um that that's an advantage but the fact that we now have such a wide array of offerings you want to do it yourself with vanguard or, or blackrock go ahead you you want to do a robo advisor for 25 or 50 bips you can do that you want to tee up something where someone's giving you personal um a, a, a little bit beyond the robo that's available you want a full suite of services because you're too busy in your career and you know that you need to invest for the rest of your life, that's available. Think back, I'm not talking 50 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, this suite of services was much, much smaller and really aimed at the very well-heeled. So we haven't quite democratized finance. I, I'm old enough to remember the Merrill Lynch thundering herd. <laughs> like Merrill Lynch was the first um, real advisor that broker that said hey we're going to give everybody access um to investing but their everybody was doctors lawyers upper middle class that top 20 30 percent is now the full spectrum of investors has to be a huge improvement for the state of people's investing long term yeah, you you mentioned talking people off the ledge uh we have an investment team of about 105 individuals, and we had to have some counseling for them as well. So don't worry. You know, it was, it was an ugly market, and you, we got to keep your cool, cooler heads prevail, right? So, so quick story about that. Um, Bill McNabb was CEO of Vanguard in the financial crisis, and they have thousands of CFPs who weren't work their phones yeah. when clients call up. And they occasionally – he tells the story of they occasionally listen in as just, you know – Calls may be monitored yep. for, for service. And they listen into a bunch of, bunch of client service calls. And the, the people in, at, on the calls, the client sounds almost as nervous as the, as the advisors, as the, the CFPs. So Vanguard sends out a all points you know, meeting. Everybody comes to this uh, meeting and... Here's the deal. There's going to be no layoffs. We're bringing in money every month in 08, and nobody's going to lose their job. You have to be confident that you're going to get through this and your client's going to get through it. And that pretty much lit Vanguard up, and that's when they started passing a trillion and then two trillion. So sometimes you have to talk the advisors off the shelf because 
it's not just their investments, it's also their careers. Their careers, right, yeah. yeah. So, Barry, it's been a great conversation. Um, you know, we, we kind of did a tour of the world, but there's one part that we have to do before we go, and that's Sam's favorite part of the show. Let's do it. All right, Barry, that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Said. I'm going to offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff. I'm watching the countdown timer right now. It's about to hit two minutes, so we're going to go old school. One word replies, concise, top of mind, one word. Wow. Do you, do you think that the time limit helps us with that? Uh, no, let's not. go. Let's On the chess time clock. Sticking, time All right. sticking. All right. Sherman, shrinkflation. <laughs> Everywhere. Drought. Problematic. Nuclear energy. Huh. <laughs> Never gonna happen. I, I, don't, I don't feel like it's uh, good. I always heard how clean it was. See, I already screwed this up. Yeah. Pass. <laughs> Crypto winner. Um, here. <laughs> OPEC. Useless. Energy prices. 89 straight days down of gasoline. Impressive. You know, all you had to do is tap into Strategic Petroleum Reserve, right? That, that has like two <laughs> days of supply in it. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's down back to the early 80s levels now, and we hear that they're, they're looking to put out, pump out some more into yeah. the inventory or release the, the so hounds. Big hair the bands will come also. That'll be good. That'd be sweet. You did use Welcome to the Jungle earlier. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, where was I? Let's see. Uh, services inflation to you, Sherman. Continuing to rise. Don't, don't sleep on housing. It's sticky. not in there. It's going to be sticky, and, it, and it's going up. We saw it big time again today, and I think it continues. All right. Buy the dip or sell the eventual rip? Both. Cash. Sexy. And then the last one here to wrap it up, the blog. Or sorry, I messed that up. The blog father. Ooh. <laughs> Fun to be. All right. All right. So if you don't know, Barry is the blog father. So there you go. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Barry. Hey, always a pleasure. A it's always fun talking to you. Again, Barry. All right. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2022, DoubleLine Capital.